Welcome to the WTF Show podcast from Bangkok, Thailand, presented by Vimal Kogar. Tune in to get your dose of weekly verbal Red Bull. Hey, 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 welcome all to the WTF Show today. We have Itago's co-founder, Sid Katari. Welcome to the show, Sid. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Vimal. Uh, Sid, tell me a little bit about your past. Uh, well, uh, I was born in a very small town in India. Uh, it's in central India in a state called Madhya Pradesh. And it was about 50 kilometers from the nearest biggest city was about 50 kilometers, Ujjain. But this was an industrial town. So it had a township of, uh, uh, there was a Birla factory owned by Adityakram Birla Group, the Grassim Industries, uh, one of their flagship companies. And they had a full township of about, uh, I would say, around 10,000 employees, my father being one of them. So I grew up in that uh, environment, in that uh, very small township. And uh, from there on, I mean, at my time in that township, there were only three professions that we knew in our life. You can either be an engineer, you can either be a doctor, or you could be a chartered accountant. Because these were all the employees that you would see around. And uh, so that was our grooming. We didn't have any uh, college or university in our small township. So we did our high school and then I moved to Ahmedabad, uh, which is definitely one of the biggest cities. And with uh, Mr. Modi being now Mr. Modi, Ahmedabad has come in a lot of limelight. And uh, I was there for my graduation. I completed my graduation from there. And then I went to Mumbai to complete my chartered accountancy. And after completing my chartered accountancy, I joined Birlas as my first job. And I was back in Gujarat. Can I just stop you? So, do you want to explain who the Birlas are to the whole oh, world, okay. please? Right, sorry, sorry. So, Aditya Bikram uh, Birla Group, or the Birla Group, as they are known, is one of the biggest industrial conglomerate of India. They are one of the top families, and uh, uh, they even have their presence in Thailand, Indonesia, and uh, other overseas ventures. Uh, they employ over, I think, uh, over 200,000 people, if I'm not wrong. And there are quite a few, uh, uh, they have about four or five factories here in Thailand as well. So did you start your career at the Birla? Oh, yeah, I did start my career at the Birla. So I started off with a cement factory. I was there as a management trainee for about six months. And then I moved to the pulp and fiber business. Oh, wow. You have quite a quite a challenging uh, beginning to your career. Absolutely. I mean, I won't say it is challenging. Uh, I would say it was very different. So I was never a big city guy, I would say. But as far as township goes, I think it was one of the most comfortable lives that we could have had. Uh, the good parts were that uh, it was a very big giant family. Everybody knew everybody. Safety levels were extremely high. Everyone was your mentor. So you could you could look up to your ex-colleagues, uh, ex-sorry, uh, friends who have already passed out. You had your father, you had his colleagues. Everybody was to there to give you an advice. Everybody was there to out-help you. And uh, it was a wonderful uh, atmosphere, I would say. So, of course, we didn't have the luxuries of life, as you would say, in terms of fine dining restaurants around or, you know, options of schools or options of universities. But uh, we definitely had a very, very good life. Uh, and I wish I could... Uh, Arrange that for my kid as well, if time <laughs> permits. <laughs> you, I, I'm presuming you had a conservative Jain family, vegetarian. Is that how you grew up? Uh, I wouldn't say my family was very conservative. They were definitely, we were, we are Jains, so we were non-vegetarian uh, non was not allowed at home at all. But uh, my father uh, was uh, born, uh, was he had his most of his uh, uh, life he had spent in Mumbai. So he was pretty cosmopolitan in that sense. He never stopped us from having non-vegetarian food. 
but uh, of course at home it was not available and around 1979 my father was posted in philippines so my mom was there so uh, we were i would say a very liberal family in that sense in fact whenever my dad would come to mumbai when i was studying there and that was the only time i could go and eat non-veg non-vegetarian food as you know in india is super expensive right so uh, in the mess we never used to get it in our hostel mess so when dad would used to be there he would take us out to good restaurants and you know that's when we would relish on non-vegetarian foods right right so it a was chicken was a treat home. chicken was a treat Oh, I I would say yes, it was. <laughs> Even egg was a treat at that time, to right, be honest. <laughs> right, right, right. So uh, after you graduated and you had your two jobs at Birla, where was the transition from there to your your new venture? How how did that happen? Well, that's a pretty long journey and a very colorful journey, I would say. So when I was working with Birlas, then I was posted to their uh, factory in Indonesia. so that was my first overseas posting out of india and i was there in indonesia and this was also a very small town it was an industrial town around 120 kilometers from jakarta and what uh, was it known as purwakarta the city, the town was known as purwakarta okay and purwakarta was a place where we had like uh, four major factories uh, within a vicinity of i would say 3 kilometers or 4 kilometers okay and uh, but uh, Jakarta by itself was about 120 kilometers from the place. It was a beautiful again a township of the company. Uh, so my initiation into an expat life was very comfortable. You know, I had a lot of Indian expats around. We were all from same background, mostly Birla employees. So predominantly Marwadis, expats having the same challenges, having the same uh, uh, pleasures of life. So I would say my initiation into an expat life, as compared to others, was much 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 easier. I was there for about six years. Then I got an opportunity to go to uh, Vietnam in Ho Chi Minh in a company called Olam. So Olam is an agricultural trading commodity, is a, a, a agricultural commodities trading company, and uh, I joined there as CFO for Vietnam. Now this was a big change for me. I was a hardcore manufacturing guy moving into trading, uh, and uh, Olam, beautiful company. filled with youngsters they give lot of opportunities to youngsters i remember my branch guys i mean it was an agricultural commodities trading company so the basic uh, job was that we were in the what we call them as origins where the commodities originate and uh, we had branch offices in small 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 villages where uh, say coffee uh, rice or uh, cashew or uh, pepper was grown so we had these branch heads and i remember i had a branch head who was fresh out of his uh, mba college he was based in a place called bomothot nobody would have even heard the name if you're not from coffee industry of this town very remote place but he was managing purchases of 200 million dollars a year wow. a fresh grad so this was ulam it really inculcated that entrepreneurship uh, spirit in us uh, i was there for about a year and then uh, i got an opportunity in 2008 to move into telecoms now telecoms was a rising industry at that point of time mobile telephone uh, the opportunity was based in lao and i realized that if i have to make such a drastic change of industry with no background in telecom services i have to start either low or in a smaller company and this is what it was and i was fortunate it was a brilliant group called melicom uh, it was part of the shinevik group from sweden uh they had operations they were uh, i would say uh, predominantly operators of uh, underdeveloped countries so they had operations in lao 
Cambodia, Vietnam. Uh, they would they had operations in tons and tons of African countries, but none of them were big. They would have it in uh, uh, I would say uh, I mean all Western African countries. They were very big in Latin, in Latin America, uh, and so these were their uh, hardcore operating markets. So basically, their business model was go and operate a telecom company in places where people would generally not go. The Vodafones and the Airtels and the idea cellulars of the world will not dare to enter. Uh, I worked with them uh, in Laos for about uh, six years. So then I moved to Vietnam through them again as regional heads. I was looking after uh, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam operations. Then I moved as country lead of, uh, country head of uh, Cambodia. And uh, when they were about to sell off, so first Shinevik group sold it to the Russian group. And then Russian group also started divesting uh, out of Southeast Asia. That's when we said enough. I've already sold the same company three times. I don't want to do it the fourth time. And I moved to Caribbean Islands. Wow. So I was with a telecom operator called Digicel. And uh, I was the CFO there for Trinidad and Tobago. I was based in Port of Spain. So my first uh, about 15 days I spent in Haiti. Uh, I was actually joining them for Haiti, but then an opportunity came and I moved to Trinidad and Tobago. And Haiti was an eye-opener. I have, I mean, people feel that uh, Nigeria is not safe. You have to visit Haiti to realize <laughs> what is not safe. Uh, I used to move in an armored car with uh, armed bodyguards, two armed bodyguards, and this was essential. Uh, in in the one year that I was with uh, Digicel, in our own Haiti, Haitian operations, my head of ops was abducted. Uh, bodyguard of my CEO was shot. Uh, we had a big robbery attempt in the company. So it was it was a very, very difficult environment to work in. And Digicel is an operator of islands. So they're very big in Caribbean islands and Pacific islands. So we were there. But uh, Digicel was owned by a guy called uh, Dennis O'Brien. And you could consider him as junior Donald Trump. So he had his Trump moments. And at one point of time, me and my... Uh, so we were moving together. My co-founders were there with Etigo. We were moving together from Laos to uh, Vietnam to Caribbean islands. And at one point of time, we were sitting back and thinking, I mean... Do we want to take all this for the for money? The answer was no. I mean, money can be made, but you have your self-respect. And you didn't want to go through that uh, nuisance again and again. And we decided, okay, let's do something on our own. And that's how we landed up in Thailand, started off with Itigo. Why Thailand? Interesting question. So, <clears throat> uh, my four co-founders, if you see, it's, uh, so three of us, myself, uh, I'm Indian. Uh, one guy, Michael, who used to be the CEO of Lao Operations and uh, was head of uh, Haitian Operations, C CEO of Haitian Operations. He's uh, half French, half German, you can say. And uh, then we had Judy, <clears throat> our third co-founder. She was president of Asia for Millicom. So we have been working together since 2008. And she was a Singaporean lady. So all of us didn't have any combined uh, natural uh, nationality. <clears throat> but we all loved Southeast Asia. Judy was based here. Michael's wife is a Filipino. I have been, I was working since 2000 in Southeast Asia. We all had love for Southeast Asia. And then we decided that uh, let's do something in Southeast Asia. I had come down to uh, Thailand because my initial objective was uh, around 2013, if you remember, Myanmar was about to open up its telecom sector. And uh, we were looking that can we get some, start a business in Myanmar for managed services. 
Uh, on the way to Myanmar, I got a call uh, from one of our ex-colleagues who used to be our intern in uh, Lao. He said that he has this business in uh, Bangkok called Restaurants of Bangkok, which used to be a directory for restaurants, something like Wong Nai, but in English. Right. So he said, would you like guys like to invest? And uh, Michael told me, while well, you're going to Myanmar, why don't you evaluate this opportunity as well? So I said, fine, I'll, I'll check it out. I came here to Bangkok. I looked at the opportunity. I realized that uh, advertising was not what we wanted to go into. Uh, we told them that, hey, guys, it's not that we want to invest. We want to run the company because we would like to change the direction completely. And uh, they said, fine. But, uh, you know, coming from the companies that we were, we were managing companies which were having turnover of 500 million or 600 million dollars. Our aspirations were never that Etigo would be a single country dominated operations. Right. We always wanted a multi-country dominated operations. And thus, we wanted to start both Singapore as well as Thailand. Right. Uh, our base, we chose Thailand because of, of course, cost reasons. Singapore was super expensive. Uh, the cost of doing the startup would have increased at least three-folds if we were starting up in Singapore. So we set it up in Thailand. We launched in Thailand. Second, uh, there were two insights that we were looking at. I mean, if you look at Southeast Asian economies, there are predominantly two very distinct type of economies here. You have the fully developed countries like Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and if you were to extend it a little bit to greater Southeast Asia and include Korea and Japan in it, these are some same similar block. And then you had the second group of countries which were uh, developing, roaring, but a single city dominated, very, very, uh, not extensively having internet penetration, but just about uh, initiating. Lazada had just started operations, e-commerce before that was unknown, right? So those were like, say, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines. So we said, if we are looking at a multi-regional approach, we need to gather our data and experiences in both type of economies. And then we can decide how we will grow the business. Should we focus on which type of countries? Where will, where will our bread and butter be? So that's why we started with two operations. Headquarters was in Thailand, as I told you, because of the cost reasons. And uh, yeah, that's 2013 and then never left. Okay, so we have our audience from all over the world. So can we start at the beginning and explain slowly what is Itigo and what is the mission statement? Okay. So uh, to start off with the mission statement, what we say is we connect empty tables with empty stomachs using time-based discounts. So uh, predominantly, Itigo is a restaurant reservation platform and it's very basic. But uh, the different aspect of Itigo is that it's actually an ill-management tool for restaurants. So, uh, you know, the insight came to us when we were looking at a graph. If you look at capacities, utilizations of, uh, say, airlines or a hotel industry, they run up in about 80%, 70 to 80%. While if you look at it at a restaurant basis, it's about 35%. Because people eat food only when they're hungry, and that's the lunchtime and the dinner time. And you have these huge capacities which are unutilized. And the name, no restaurant on this planet dies because of very high variable cost. Food cost of any restaurant, which is half decently managed, would not be more than 30% of its price. Right. What really kills restaurant is its fixed cost. Right. It's the labor cost. It's the rental. It's the electricity. It's, it's the branding, the marketing. All these things kill a restaurant. And we said, okay, you have these empty tables lying around at, say, 3 p.m., 2 p.m., uh, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., or maybe at 9 p.m., 10 p.m., when there is nobody to eat. Why don't you give a discount at that time? 
move your clientele around those spots and increase the table turn. Right. You have a very perverse situation. You have a peak time when the restaurant is completely uh, full. You have queues of waiting people. And then one hour down the line, you're completely empty. You're, you're still paying your wages. You're still paying for the electricity. You're still paying for the rentals. But there is no income that is coming. So that is the time when we put the concept of ill management. And which, by the way, is a very, very known concept in hotels, airlines. Today, if you're flying in a, uh, on a flight to Singapore, right, a flight on a Friday evening would not be the same price as a Monday afternoon. Right. It's, it's all about adjusting the price to the demand, right. which did not happen in restaurant industry. A menu card was fixed, a price was fixed, be it a Sunday, be it a Saturday, be it a Tuesday afternoon. And this is the concept that is when we realized. And coming from telecom's background, I mean, this is exactly what we used to do. That's the exact telephone, uh, telecom model it is there. You, you build your capacities to meet your peak demand and then start offering various promotions during off-peak period to fill the capacities up. Right. And uh, so this was the concept that we brought in and this is what Itigo is all about. Excellent. So four people from four different parts of the world come together in Thailand and Singapore to set up Itigo. Tell me about the struggles of the first few years. Oh, the biggest struggle was shift of mindset. If you see uh, three out of the four co-founders, we were coming from a very cushy corporate job. Um, my salary was in excess of half a million dollar a year and very comfortable life living in a penthouse and then suddenly coming and doing your own startup, uh, thinking about each and every dollar to be spent. Uh, first few years, we used to go to Singapore like uh, once every two or three weeks, uh, once every two weeks minimum. And we would take, Air Asia had a flight at that time, which used to fly off at 6.50 in the morning from Don Muang. We used to take that flight, reach Singapore by 9 a.m., Singapore time. 9.30, we would start our meetings, finish our meetings at 8.30. We didn't want to spend on hotels in Singapore. They were too expensive. Have our dinner, take the flight at 10 o'clock, land in Bangkok at 12 midnight, go to sleep, get up the next day morning and back to office. Right. This was very much against my previous lifestyle just prior to starting uh, Etigo, where I would fly business class, I would be staying in the top five-star hotels, cost was never a concern. And then suddenly cost becoming your prime concern was was one was, big challenge. Then it was OPM, now it's OM, now it's your own money. Uh, it's not about, uh, see, this is uh, definitely, it does make a factor. Uh, it's not about OPM and OM, I would say more. It's about what you can afford. I always say, uh, as a, as a human being or as a company, we should always spend according to our uh, capacities. So say if you are a billionaire and you still drive a, a Honda Jazz, right. I don't think that is appropriate. Right. While if you, are, if you are a commoner and you want to buy a Ferrari, I think that is also not appropriate. Right. Right? So people should live as per the means that is provided and this transition one should understand in life. It, it's never... It's, very few lucky people who would maintain one standard uh, uh, lifestyle. Uh, but uh, you should be always be prepared. prepared. Eventualities can come. I have seen a lot of my friends coming from very humble background, now being millionaires and billionaires. And it would be very, very odd if they don't live their lifestyle accordingly. They would not be able to network in the right circles. They would not be able to hold up. Modesty is good. But uh, there is a very thin line of uh, this between being stingy and being modest. 
So I say we should always be modest, but we should not be stingy. We should always spend as per our capacities. So when we started Etico, for sure, we were not having, we were not running a multi-billion dollar business. We were not running a business that is generating $400 million profit, even after all those expenses. So we couldn't have done those expenses. Okay, so tell me a little bit about Etigo in terms of um, when we when we grew up as kids, we were we were told that you when you started a business, you needed to have X amount of profitability, and the profitability would grow, and you would use those profits to maybe reinvest into the firm. And today's startup culture is sometimes no operating profit, sometimes a a Series B, Series C funding, and then you grow and then you wait for a SPAC to take you up. So your exit is where you make the money. And uh, um, old school people don't fully understand this, and I'm, I'm I'm not going either way, but can you rationalize it to our audience how this works? Profitability is always the core. Okay. The question is the timing. Okay. Do you want or uh, are you investing in small profits today or are you investing in the hope of a very big profit, say five years down the line? That's how investors look at a business. No investor on this earth will give you even a single dollar if he does not feel that he's not going to get his returns. Right. Right. Eventually, someone is going to pay only when you're going to be profitable. Right. The point is, in which part of that ladder are you? So the reason why startups get extremely high valuation is the potential and possibility of being able to reach a very vast consumer base at a very low cost of investment. Basically, scale. It's scale. Right. right? Say if you have a manufacturing industry, I know the scalability is not going to come. So if I have to invest in your business, I have to look at the profitability today. Right. But if I'm investing in a startup, say it's an e-commerce company, I know he can reach to anybody anywhere in the world tomorrow. Can he do that? That's a different question about execution. But there is a potential, there is a possibility. So as an investor, I see, okay, even though he's not making money today, that's why I can go in cheap. I can take this business. But can I turn him around and make him that business? And that's where the money would come. But what we see is the short-term cycle, where we see a lot of guys, oh, the founder started the company. He gets diluted by second, third series. He exits, he makes a lot of money, then comes the next investor. But in the chain, what is happening is everybody is driving the business to achieve that scalability. Right. So there is a capacity to which I can drive Etico. So it's right? a numbers game. The guy who buys you wants to scale it 10x, 100x, 1000x. I mean, see, again, any business on this earth, any business on this earth is done on the concept of hope. Right. As long as you're optimist and as long as you have a hope in this business, anybody would invest. The day that hope dies, the day that optimism dies, nobody invests in you. And that goes even for your own business. Today, if you were to start your own industry, why would you do it? Because you believe in it. You have a hope that this industry will grow to certain excise, it will generate certain amount of money, and uh, I will be able to live off, right? So everybody has an intention or, or, or an idea on how he's going to take that business. So do investors. So you have different type of investors. You have some strategic investors who come in who want profitability, who want revenue. Then you have some investors who will come in at a Series A stage who want return on their investment. They are holding the fund for maybe three months, three years or four years. 
they want to exit your business in three to four years so that they can generate returns to their uh, investors, their LPs. So for them, the horizon is three to four years. They know for sure the business would not become a billion dollar business in three to four years or that scalability will not be achieved. But can I bring it on that path? Where will I be at the end of four years? Will it still be on the track to get that uh, billion dollar dream? Then probably I can exit at maybe 100, 200, 300 million dollar valuation. So it's the propensity on how long you can sustain that hope and how long you want to meet your objectives. Is, is there a timeline between when you started it, when you said to yourself, I have a five-year, 10-year, 15-year point of view, or is it you sort of you sort of go on this magic carpet ride and you, you're trying to see where the opportunities are and how fast you can scale, the, the, the pace of acceleration of the scalability? Okay, see... Uh, at ETGO, we always believed that uh, scalability should not come at the cost of profitability. Right. So we never wanted to go into what we call as economic terrorism. So we did have some of the competitions that came in into Thailand market. They started offering exactly same services like ETGO for free. Right. We are an expensive service for a merchant but because we feel that we are adding value. So I, I understand that you, you, you charge a portion of the revenue. Is that right? Uh, not exactly revenue. We charge fixed uh, fee per cover. Fixed fee per cover. So if we send 10 people, we'll charge you a fixed fee for those 10 people. I understand. Irrespective of what they eat. Right. For a restaurant. Right. Uh, so this gives a flexibility for user to order as much as he wants and whatever he wants. Right. And it gives restaurant a security that if the person is eating more, it's not that it's going to be more expensive. Right. Our job was to get the customer and we charge for that. Right. So we were very open and fair in our pricing policy. And uh, we always felt that, uh, you know, these economic terrorism-oriented companies would come in who are giving everything for free. Uh, restaurants would come and tell me, left, right, and center, this guy has just approached me, he's giving me for free, why should I pay you? And I would always tell them that, just think about it. If you're not going to pay this guy any money, is his interest aligned with yours? Right. If it is not, why will he think of your benefit? Right. Me, I will not make a single dollar if your company is not selling or if I'm not sending customers to you, he is making money somewhere else. Maybe he's getting the money from investors. So he just wants to show that he has 10,000 restaurants today. Right. Correct. So for that to happen, it's you have to build a model that is economically viable and that is sustainable. But surely the model that you're building is will take you slightly slower than the other guy in terms of scaling. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely, it will. And we are very cognizant of this fact. Right. And we want to see that, you know, you asked one question, where do you see ETGO? Is there a career path or is there a path that you decided? You know, we as founders were very clear. The day we feel that the company has matured enough, has become self-sustainable, that's when we will feel we have done a job and we should exit. Right. So coming back to my mission statement at WTF, we are about youth empowerment peer-to-peer and jobs, jobs, jobs. So first question would be advice to people who want to start their startups. And second, my question would be the type of person you're looking for in an interview, especially the person's EQ, IQ ratio. So uh, to answer first question first, if you want to do a startup, uh, you know, when we were new, we went into a event, a startup event called Tech in Asia. And it was a three-day event. And there was a big hall with a lot of booths. And there were about 1,000 startups 
making a presentation. Each and every booth I went to, independently, the ideas were fantastic. I cannot uh, denounce them. Each and every one of them had a billion dollar dream. And I came back and I asked Michael, do you really believe that we are sitting on a trillion dollar economy five years down the line in this particular room? It's not going to happen, right? And, and that's the real fact. So some are going to succeed, some are going to fail. Some are going to succeed, some are going to fail. What differentiates, my personal view is, there are two things. One is in execution and second is in passion. You know, today people get caught in a lot of uh, uh, catchy words. Oh, I want to pivot. Why? What is the need? And, and if there is no need, what was wrong in your earlier model? Why can't you fix that? What's the need to completely pivot? You'll be surprised to know, Vimal. When we started eTigo in 2013, even before we had a website, we had a presentation which had FAQs of what this product would be, which had designs that we thought this product would be. And you see that presentation today, 95% is still the same. Wow. The FAQs still hold. The business model still holds. The, the, uh, the app looks the way it looks, right? And it does and it delivers what it delivers. We have added some more services. No, no doubt about that. Everybody wants to grow. Everybody wants to this. But at the core, at the heart, the model of ETCO, business model of ETCO has not changed. So this is what I tell anybody who wants to do a startup. Number one, be very passionate about what you're doing. Research very well who your customers are. And mind you, it's a very, very dubious question. Like if you ask me eTigo today, who are my customers? Is it the users who make a reservation or is it the merchants to whom the users go to? And I say, it's always my consumer is the merchants because they are the ones who are paying me money. My product has to address their needs and I have to understand, is this a need for which they will pay me the money? Right. There is no point in addressing the requirement of a user who's not paying me anything. Right. If it does not uh, help the merchants, I'm not getting paid. I'm not making money. And this is one big mistake that most people do when they do startups. They do not think of the monetization model. Where is the revenue going to come from? Is it really worth for the person to pay that kind of money? Right? It's, it's a need for sure. Right? Say so if I make an app, a hypothetical app where I say, yeah, you can breathe air. But you'll have to pay $1. Who's going to pay me $1 when they can breathe it for free? Right? So we have to think what is the need. And we have to see whether that need and the pricing are commensurate to each other. It should not be cheaper than what it should be. It should not be expensive than what it should be. Both are wrong. And, and then you have to really steer and be very focused on your ideas. There were several times when people told, when we started eTigo, way back in 2013, I have tons and tons of emails where people have told me, guys, don't start in Thailand. Thailand does not have a reservation culture. It's a walk-in culture. People like to walk in into the restaurant. They don't make a reservation. But our insight was something very different. Thai people love discounts. That was the time when Groupon and Ensogo were selling vouchers like left, right and center right. for restaurants. So we said, okay, fine. People do not make reservation, but they want discount. Can we marry these two concepts? Will people at least make a reservation to get a discount? Right. And that theory proved true. Today, even in uh, Thailand, in our heydays pre prior to COVID, we were uh, seating over, uh, I would say, around 2 million diners a month. Wow, it's a lot. So it was a very good business that we were generating. So this is one thing that I will tell everybody, be passionate. 
evaluate your model left, right and center, knock it hard, understand what is the need, talk to your consumer set, whom you think is going to pay to you. Ask them, is this something that they will pay you? And if yes, how much? And that's when you get into a startup and you'll make it a successful model. Never think that, can I sell this startup to that ex-investor at Y price? So I will invest $50,000 today. Maybe this investor will come in and buy it without understanding the concept of the business itself. The guy may be super excited about your idea tomorrow, but five, two years down the line, when you really reach that point, his objectives might have changed. But if your business is built on a strong model, it will never change. It will always be a commodity that you can sell. So that would be my advice. Uh, I'm sorry, what was the second part? Second one was when you interview somebody, are you looking for, what is the EQ-IQ equation that you're looking for? Okay. So, uh, see, there is, uh, there, the, earlier on in my career, I was given one mantra. You know, uh, if you have a person who has a good attitude and a good skill set, promote him. If you have a uh, person who has good attitude but low skill set, train him. But if you have a person who has bad attitude but a good skill set, fire him. Right? And if you have a person who has bad attitude and bad skill set, don't hire him. Right. right? And the logic is very, very clear. Skill sets are... You're, you use the word IQ, but I will more use knowledge or skill sets. This is something I can train a person on. But attitude is something that I cannot change. Right. And you need a person uh, who matches with the attitude of your company. He should fit into the culture of your company. Otherwise, he will be frustrated, you will be frustrated. Right. So it's best that you separate ways. Right. And if you find this candidate who is good in attitude and good in skill sets, promote him, push him. And this is what I will say. And uh, I don't like to put uh, categorize things in right and wrong. I categorize things in fits and misfits. No attitude is a wrong attitude. You just have to find an organization that suits your attitude. And as a, as a uh, young kids, I would always say, don't fool yourself. When you are going for an interview, it is not only that a company is assessing you. You should take time to assess the company itself. And you should see, is it really the kind of culture that you want to settle in? Is it the job that you want to do? If those two are yes, then and only then take a job. Never be desperate to join a wrong company. Tell me, um, we are here in Thailand and myself, I'm, I'm third generation and I understand you're first generation. We are basically part of the Indian diaspora. And Thailand's given us uh, a very comfortable life, the wonderful people that they are. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Thailand and, and maybe Itago's relationship with Thailand. Tell me something a little bit personal. Well, uh, I would say, you know, if you ask me if there was a heaven on this earth, where would it be? I would say it would be Southeast Asia. Right? I'm not particularly saying about Thailand, but I would definitely say it would be Southeast Asia. Because, you know, if I close my eyes and think, what would there be in heaven? Right? I would have a comfortable life. I would have some people to help me. And I feel that value for money in Southeast Asia is amazing. It is such a peaceful country. All Southeast Asia, most of the Southeast Asian countries, with an exception of maybe Myanmar or some other, are very peaceful. People in general are peace-loving. Right. People respect all nationalities. And people respect your knowledge and your skill set. And they don't judge you by the color of your skin. Right. Which is excellent. If you look at comforts of life, it's 
an amazing life. In, I can have two or three maids in my house. I can send my kids to one of the best uh, public schools or uh, international schools. They have, you can travel anywhere. It's so closely and so cheap. Travel is so cheap. You can see so much of the world at so less a cost that it is unbelievable. So I feel that uh, I, I'm lucky to be in Southeast Asia. And within Southeast Asia, I feel Thailand is one of the, not one of the, it's my favorite because of location. It's very centrally located. People are extremely, extremely, extremely nice. Uh, it's The cost of living is very nice. It's a very clean country. It's a very safe country. And uh, I don't know what else would I want uh, if I have to live anywhere else. Um, tell me a little bit about um, the future. How do you see Itago moving forward? And uh, do you have a plan to maybe enter a little bit more or exit or go international? What's the plan for Itago? Going international that we already are. We are present in eight countries now. Okay. So uh, that box is already checked. Exit, it was always a plan. It was not a business that we started that our kids would do. So Itigo is a very professionally run company. Right. So uh, if I have, if my son has to do an internship in the company, he has to sign a contract. Right. It's not that just because he's my son, he will get it. He's, he was entered last uh, summers. He went, wanted to do an internship and I said, I can't help. I can just introduce you. At the end of the day, it's up to the manager whether he wants to hire you. Right. right? And uh, so it's, it's a very professionally managed company. It was never done for that. We will never exit. So exit is definitely on the horizon. Our plans have taken a beating because of COVID. The businesses were hurt. Uh, but we feel that we are very much on track that maybe next two to three years, as I said, the dream is that the day company becomes self-sufficient, it is not dependent on other people's money. The money that we take from investors should be used for growth. If we reach that influx point is, I think, the time when we would say it's time to say goodbye to VTGO. Okay. Um in terms of, again, our mission statement here at WTF, there are kids out there who are uh, looking for jobs, can't get jobs, or are just a little bit disillusioned. Uh, what advice can you give young people entering the workforce who are maybe either jobless or don't have a passion in their job or uh, can't find the right fit somehow? They, they can't find themselves in this uh, new challenging world we live in. You see, fortunately, we are in Thailand. An unemployment rate is really low. The only reason why I feel uh, the unemployment rate uh, people are not able to find a job is probably their expectations are not correct. I, I come across a lot of young grads who will come who want a job and suddenly they will say, oh, yeah, I want 30,000 baht. Right? Or, or maybe 25,000 baht. And I'm like, okay, that's not the starting salary, right? And then you start uh, being frustrated. So I would, I, one piece of advice that I would give is, first understand what is your passion. And then don't think about the money that comes with it. You're in a very early part of your career. There is enough of life left to make money. So this is the time when you should devote to upgrade your skills and get the, into the right kind of companies that you want to get into, what is the path that will lead you to your dream job is always what I say. So you don't need to start with your dream job, but at least you should be on the track that you can land your dream job, maybe two years, three years, four years down the line. So, uh, I mean, when life throws lemons, you make lemonade. Right. So maybe you don't get the job that you wanted, you don't get the salary that you wanted, but always keep a track whether you are on the right track 
whether it will give you or it will take you to that level. I feel very, very proud and very happy when I see some of the early days e-tickers now going and joining billion-dollar companies like Uber and all that. I, we have no hard feelings. In fact, I was just talking to one of our ex-employees uh, yesterday. He is now in Germany. He is heading operations of Uber in Germany. And it makes us feel very happy and very glad. So uh, for him, he took a big risk. He joined Etigo. It was a very small company way back in 2014. There was the company had no branding, no name, nothing. And but it put him on the right track. It put him in the right industry where his passion was, and he could grow. He came here to work for a travel agent, if you would believe. So he came from Germany to Thailand to work for a travel agency. He was managing the outbound. Thai tourist into Germany. He was managing their plans. That was not his passion, but he came to Thailand because he felt that he wanted to be in Southeast Asia. This was one opening he got. Then after coming here, he got uh, found Etigo. He joined Etigo because tech was where he wanted to be, and now he is where he really wants to be, which is in a company like Uber. Fantastic. I have the best job in the world because I get to interview people like Sid Katari at Etigo. Thank you so much, Sid, for joining the show. Before we go, I'd like to ask you for a final question and give you a little bit of a blank sheet if you want to say anything else. My final question is: Who influenced you the most as you grew up? Before we go to that question, some reminders for our viewers. Monday, we've started the WTF radio show. Said you have to go to DJ Rico on the WTF radio show. It's a twenty-five minute show of all the music you like. Said Abba Boniam and the whole works. We have Saturday Night Fever. We have all the fun stuff from the seventies and eighties. So that's if you Google it, WTF radio show. With DJ Rico Tuesday, we have an investing show called WTF Investing Show with Derek Kanijao. He is the best of the best, and he will teach you how to invest your money. Wednesday, we have a lovely lady, one of the loveliest ladies in Bangkok, Shruti Katari. She does a, a parody show about reading books called uh, "Fake It Till You Make It." So it's called the WTF Fake It Till You Make It Show. On WTF Media, and we will go daily by June every single day of the week. You will have a show on WTF. We look forward to you googling WTF Media, and you will find us on all social media platforms. Um, um, Sid, thank you so much for joining the show. I'd like to request two things of you. One is you have the privilege of. Finding and and suggesting a guest for us for our next show, so we offer all our guests the privilege to select somebody they think would be excellent on the show the next time. You also are welcome at the end of the year to the WTF Youth Awards. Before that, you will nominate and vote for Youth of the Year, age twenty to thirty, who lives in Southeast Asia, who has added to his community in a positive way. I thank you again. Sid Katari, Itago, for joining our show, and I really hope you enjoyed the show with us today. And we leave you with our final question, Sid. When it comes to inspiration, I would say that I take my inspiration from a lot of different people. Clearly, when it comes to family values, how to run the family, how to manage the family, my father was my role model. 
when it comes to uh, caring and giving to the society, my mother was my role model. Uh, when it comes to professional life, as I told you, I grew up in a township and I was fortunate enough to look at a lot of my seniors from my school, their parents, how they have progressed in their careers. And I always used to wonder if a person is the president of a company, why? Why is he different from Mr. X or Mr. Y? And uh, this used to inspire me a lot. I always wanted to reach there. And then uh, during my professional life, there were quite a few people. In fact, when I was doing my CA, I had few students whom I really look up to. I had people who were smart, who were intelligent. There was a guy who told me, Sid, never study to gain knowledge, study to pass your exams. <laughs> knowledge is what you will gain when you start your work. Right. So he used to say, MBA you can pay and buy and get, but MBE, which is path to success, only comes by experience. By MBE, he meant management by experience. Right. He feels that's the degree that you really want to have. And he was brilliant in his advice. He was a CA topper in India. It's very tough. Uh, then I had a boss who would leave his table exactly at 6 p.m. with not even a single paper left on his table. So for him, he always taught me, take decisions, make decisions, put the ball in other person's court as fast as possible. So, uh, and uh, then of course, I take a lot of inspiration from Michael, my CEO, uh, Judy, my co-founder, Louis, my co-founder, everybody. In fact, when you look around, every person has something positive that you can really look into and you can really inspire yourself. In fact, I look at my son, the way he works today. Uh, he would go for his swimming, he would go for his tennis, he prepares for his SAT, he prepares for his A-levels. And I really feel, can I do that today? And probably not. So I do take inspiration from him as well. So I feel that, uh, you know, for each and everything in life, I like to look at people. I admire people and I take... Uh, inspirations on the positive sides that they bring and try and inculcate in my life. Inspiration indeed. The middle word in the WTF. Thank you so much, Sid Katari, for joining us on the show today. We look forward to you joining us next time. We hope you had a good time. A lovely time. Thank you, Vimal. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. The way you conduct this program is amazing. You know, just before coming here, I went through some of the podcasts that you had earlier and you know, again, I took a lot of inspiration from there as well. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you join us soon. Goodbye and good luck to you, Sid, and hope to catch you soon. Thank you. Goodbye. That's it from the WTF Show. Vimal and the team from WTF Show would like to thank all our sponsors. Tune in next week for another great gig with people making a difference to your future. For advertising spots, go to the WTF Show IG page and get more info or contact Vimo at 6681-616-5987.